Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Today is a little bit different, but thankfully the church was never dependent upon a building to have services. And so uh, welcome to all of you watching online. If you normally attend services, hey, welcome to you. If you normally watch online, welcome to you. If you happen to show up at Foothill this morning and nobody was there, our apologies, but um, we can thank our wonderful power company for that this week. I do want to let everybody know next week, next Sunday, we will have services at the regular times at Foothill High School, 845, 10, and 1115. And we are having baptisms, baptisms at every service. And so it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a party. But um, hey, a little bit different today. One of the mindsets um, that, that most of us, if not all of us, share is this mindset of if something is too good to be true, then it probably is. It's probably not real. It's this mentality of, oh, I don't know if I can believe that. And, and what's presented to us when it, when it offers too much, when, when it looks too good, when promises are made that it's going to promise you everything, then we tend to get suspicious of motives of what's being offered to us. Case in point, this is an email I got uh, earlier this year, and it was a great email. The, the email started, I hope this information meet you well, as I know you will be curious to know why I selected you to receive the sum of five million dollars. Now just put grammar aside real quick because it didn't start off with a great grammar. Five million dollars and offers five million dollars. I'm like I'm gonna keep reading because who wouldn't want five million dollars. So the email goes on and says my wife and I decided to donate the sum of five million dollars to you as part of our charity project to improve the ten lucky individuals all over the world from our $65 billion that my wife and I mapped out to help people. Now, this is from Bill Gates. This e Really, it's from Bill Gates. This email came from Bill and Melinda Gates offering me $5 million. Now, again, you know, Bill's getting older. In fact, Evel even mentions, you know, he doesn't have much time to live. Maybe his grammar is slipping because of it. But when we get emails like this, our first thought is suspicion, right? But, it, hey, they were willing to give me $5 million, so, I mean, come on. Of course, I responded, and I gave them all my information and said, oh, no, no, no. Nobody does that, right? Nobody does it because nobody wants to appear foolish or taken advantage of. And closely associated with this belief is one very similar to it, which says you can't get something for nothing, we all have this, this disapproval of somebody getting something that they, they didn't work for, that they didn't put any effort into, that they're getting a, a return without putting anything into it. We don't do that with our kids. That's the whole basis of an allowance, right? You have to earn your allowance. I will give you money in exchange for you doing chores, for you doing work around the house, or whatever it may be in your family context. We don't do that with employees. Employees don't get bonuses for being underperformers. You get a bonus because you've put effort in, because you've gone above and beyond. 
You see, our belief is we expect to receive some benefit because we've earned it. You don't get something that you haven't put any effort in on. And maybe that payment is your time. Maybe that payment is, is, is energy, uh, a skill that you put into it. Maybe that effort is sacrifice that you have made. But we expect there to be an exchange. Our belief is that things of value, they take work. They take effort on our part. And we respect, we respect the people who've, who've put that time in, who've put that energy in, who've put that work in to accomplish what they have. Because we're taught this from early on in life, aren't we? We're taught that, that the early bird gets the worm, that, that no pain, no gain, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And we know these rules because we live by them. And we even carry this thinking, this mentality into our spiritual beliefs. That I have to earn my own redemption for my past wrongs, for my, my past sins. That I have to live in this morally ac acceptable way in order to earn my, you know, a, that I'm good enough for the afterlife. That it's, that it's up to me and my efforts. In fact, Many of today's major religions have that very mentality built into the core of what they are. Buddhism, as an example, is all about a ceasing desire that a person must constantly be on the alert to seek his own deliverance by denying desire. Confucius spoke of self-reflection, that you have to pursue this self-cultivation self as a means of moral perfection. Hinduism taught that detaching yourself from your separated ego and making an effort to live in unity with the divine would bring about your salvation. Islam all about living a holy life of good deeds, about working towards your salvation. And Orthodox Judaism, it's repentance, it's prayer, it's obeying the laws as spelled out. Again, earning by what you do. But the question I have for us today is, can we save ourselves? Is it up to us? Are we capable of doing these things? This is the, the last week in our series, In All Things God Works. And over the last three weeks, we've seen how God works in all aspects of our life. We've seen how God works in all things, in, in every situation of life. We've seen how God works through healing in our lives. We've seen how God works through growth in our lives. And today, we're going to see how God works through grace. How God works through grace in our lives. And we start with the words of a man named Paul. Now, if you're not familiar with who Paul is, Paul appears in the, in the pages of history as someone who actually hates Christians and the Jesus that they follow. He's kind of like the antichrist follower. But in this you know, amazing twist in Paul's life, he goes from being an antichrist follower to becoming a Christ follower. And he gets so passionate about the message of Jesus that he decides, I'm going to spread this everywhere. I'm going to take this message everywhere. And, and a message that had kind of been confined to the area of Israel, he begins to, to spread throughout the region, even going into parts of southern Europe. 
And he's taking a message, and here's the challenge he is, he's taking a message that's counter to the way people are currently believing, that, that's, that's countering the value systems they have built their life around in their beliefs. And part of what he would do, in addition to his travels, is he would write letters. He would write letters to various groups of people living in different cities. He would write these to churches, in essence, that had started in these different cities. And one of the letters that he wrote was to a group of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. It's the book of Ephesians in the Bible. And Ephesus was, it was a Roman provision, a provision capital. And it was a city that was very well known for its trade and its, and its art culture and all this kind of stuff. But it also had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in it. And that, that wonder that it had was the temple to the goddess Artemis. And it was famous because of the worship that they had, of the beauty of this temple, which the ruins of which are still there today. And about this god, a Greek historian wrote, Artemis has her name from the fact that she makes people Artemis, meaning sound, well, or delivered. Another word that shows up in history talking about Artemis when she's mentioned is the word save. And you see, the idea of deliver and the idea of save go hand in hand. There, there are frequent references to Artemis Ephesia, as she was called, as Savior. So to the Ephesians, the goddess Artemis, the Artemis Ephesia, was the one who saves or delivers. But here's what Paul says in the letter he writes to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So something has happened. Something has been done for us. Paul says we've been saved. And the first thing you have to ask yourself is, well, from what? And if you go back earlier in this chapter, if you go back earlier to what Paul has been saying, the chapter opens with this declaration that we are dead in our sins before Christ. That we're separated from God due to sin. Due to the, the human nature, which is, which is going after its own desires and its, and its own lusts. And this brokenness, this brokenness that Paul describes earlier in the chapter and, and earlier in the book of Ephesians, goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve. All the way back to the story of the beginning of humanity. And we see in the story of Adam and Eve how, you know, God said, there's this one thing I just don't want you to do. Everything else is yours. And it's that one thing that human nature always wants to go after, right? And through this one act, brokenness came into the human condition. Brokenness came into this world. Paul talks about it this way in, in another one of the letters he wrote, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. You know, it's, it's not quite like the walking dead that we see on TV where it's not like zombie state and everyone going out. But it is a spiritual condition that we have. We've been broken by a sinful nature. 
But Paul then goes on right before what we just read, and he says, but we have been made alive in Christ. So this is the change that's been made that he's talking about, how we've been saved. We've moved from death to life, from separated from God to relationship with God. And the word save that he uses is this idea of to deliver, to preserve life. I remember as, as a young boy, my family uh, took a, like a weekend getaway. My dad was out of town, and so my mom and my grandma packed, um, my brother and my sisters packed us all up in the car, and we had a little weekend getaway, and we go to a friend's place, and, and we're in this community pool. And so we're having fun as kids in the pool, and my, my mom, who had nearly drowned as a child, had, had a fear of water, but she had wanted to face that fear this year, and so previous to this trip, she had taken swim lessons. And so while we're at this pool, she decides, hey, I'm going to swim from one side of the pool to the other. And so she starts at the shallow end of the pool, and she kicks herself off, and she's doing her stroke like she had been taught. And when she suddenly realized, like, oh, I'm out of breath, she hadn't learned how to turn the head, so she said, i got to stand up and get a breath. But she had swum far enough that now she was beyond where her feet could touch. And suddenly she can't get air. She can't get her head above the water. And she feels herself begin to sink. And so she remembered from her swim lessons, what do you do? You ball up and that's supposed to take you to the top and then you can breathe. So she balls herself up. But rather than floating to the top, she finds herself sinking to the bottom. What I remember of this day is this young man suddenly running to the pool and diving into the pool. You see, he'd been posted around this pool, no lifeguard on duty, typical for community pools. But just recently, they had just hired a teenager to be at the pool, to be the lifeguard on duty. And, and he wasn't even supposed to necessarily be there at that moment, but he happened to be just hanging out at the pool, sitting in a chair, and started thinking to himself at one point, hey, where's that woman who brought these kids? And from the angle he was sitting at, he could just see into a portion of the bottom of the pool where he saw my mom laying. And so he jumped from his chair and he runs and he dives in. And I remember this kid just running and diving in the pool. And the next thing I know, he's coming up out of the water with my mom draped across his shoulder. Another gentleman who was there with his family runs over to the side of the pool and, and, and they pull her out of the pool and they start doing CPR and, and my, my mom is resuscitated and, and, and the whole story. She had tried to save herself by doing what she had been taught to do. But she couldn't save herself. She needed someone else to jump in and save her. And, and all of us have a story in our lives of finding or maybe it was even placing ourselves in a situation where we couldn't get ourselves out of it, where we needed somebody to do something for us on our behalf to save us. And the same is true of our condition spiritually. You see, this expression, the phrase Paul uses, that you have been saved, it's kind of almost difficult to, to capture the full meaning of it in the English language. Because the Greek word, in essence, emphasizes an action that was done at a point in time, but continues on to the present and into the future. Think of it this way. For all you couples who have been married, 
You have or are married. You, you had a wedding day and it's a big celebration and it's this beautiful moment in time and, and every year you have an anniversary, right? And guys, we're always really good never to forget our anniversary. But an anniversary is all about looking back at a day where a decision was made, a choice was made, a change was made in life because now you're not alone, now you're not single, now, now you're not you know, doing your own thing. You've joined your life together with this other person. Person. And an anniversary is about celebrating that point in time that didn't just stay there, because you're still married. And every time you celebrate an anniversary, you're celebrating what was done in the past, what still continue on into today, and what's going to be moving on into the future. That's the idea of being saved that Paul talks about. And as he shares this, it's, it's completely different to the train of thought of that time. Because they're worshiping a God that they had to go do things for in order to earn their salvation. In order to earn their, their, you know, their okay into the afterlife. And in all the religions we even mentioned earlier, that's the basis. You don't even find out if you're successful until you've died whether you've done enough to earn it. But Paul says the work necessary to save, it's been done. And how has this salvation, how has this work been offered to us? It's been offered to us through grace. Because he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Les Miserables? And I'm never even really sure how to pronounce that because I never took French, but Les Miserables. You know? Now, I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it yet, but man, it's been around for so long, that's on you. That's your fault for not watching it yet. But, but I saw the best version of it. The best version of this you could see. And of course, that was the movie version with Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe. And that's the one that I saw. That's the one that I watched. But in this story, if you know the story, it's the story about a guy named Jean Valjean, right? And, and he's, he's a criminal, he gets arrested for a crime, he gets thrown in prison, he spends you know, 19 years in prison, and then when he gets out on parole, he can't find a job because ex-cons, you know, you got everything working against you, nobody wants to hire you, can't find a place to stay. And so he's shown grace, he's shown mercy by, by a, a local bishop and says, hey, you can stay here in the church. But what does he do? He steals all the silver from the place. And he packs it in a bag and he takes off, but he gets caught. The police bring him back. And this bishop does something completely unexpected. He starts taking the silver and putting it back in Jean Valjean's bag. And he says, oh, no, no, this was a gift that I gave to him. And he tells Jean Valjean something before he takes off. In essence, like, take this opportunity to make something of your life. And so he does. He takes off, and, and with the grace that he was shown, he never gets over it. It completely changes his life, and he begins to give grace and show grace to different people that start coming through his life And as the story goes on. But, but there's this other character in the story, Javar. And he's the police officer who just can't get over like, no, there's a crime that's been committed. You deserve punishment. You deserve the penalty. And he chases him and chases him and chases him to the point where eventually Jean Valjean shows Javert grace. And he just can't handle it. He just can't understand it. You see in the story, grace just never added up for Javert. And for some, grace 
never adds up. It even impacts the way we think of God's grace. Because for some of us, the part of our challenge is that our view of God's grace is often birthed out of experiences with each other. Whether it's a parent or a relative or a co-worker or just even your general view of humanity, our experience with sinful, broken people affects our view of God and his grace. We're unacquainted with grace that's untainted by brokenness. And we've never met a person who embodies grace perfectly in our lives. But when Paul says we've been saved by grace, the grace he talks about is this. It's God's undeserved and unmerited favor. It's the idea of of a kindness bestowed upon us that we don't deserve, that we haven't done anything to deserve. In Genesis chapter 45, we get sort of the concluding part of the story of, of Joseph and his brothers. And the story begins by Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. They kind of originally wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him into slavery. And, and Joseph eventually, over a period of you know, years, goes from being a slave to the second in command of the Egyptian dynasty. And this famine eventually comes to the land where his family lives, and his brothers are sent into Egypt to try to get some food. And unbeknownst to them, end up standing in front of their brother, only they don't know it's their brother. And they're asking, like, hey, we need help, we need, we need food. And once Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, once they finally recognize who he is, you have to imagine the fear that these brothers felt, because now here's the brother that they threw into a pit and sold into slavery, who is now the second most powerful man in Egypt who can make a decision about their life in a split second. And the brother who had the most to fear was Judah. Because Judah is the one who said, hey guys, we probably couldn't get away with killing him. Let's sell him. And in a matter of seconds, had changed Joseph's life forever. And for more than 20 years, Judah had, he'd outrun the consequences of his betrayal. But hey, we know, the, we know how this works, right? What comes around goes around, right? It's karma. But here's what's amazing. There's no sound of guards rushing in with weapons at the ready. There's no orders to arrest all of the brothers. Everything was strangely calm. And this would be a day that Judah would never forget because this was a day of grace where he was given precisely what he deserved the least. You see, Joseph says to his brothers in in Genesis 45, 5, don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. This is one of those moments I would have loved to have been here to just watch the brothers' reaction to this, to see what they would have done. Like, how long did it take to register? Like, wait, what did he just say? Like, wait, he's not going to retaliate against us for what we've done? You see, Previous to that statement, the brothers were consumed by guilt over what they had done. But Joseph was consumed with something entirely different. He was consumed with grace. And not only did Joseph forgive him, but then he invites him, hey, come bring everybody here. Bring into the the nicest parts of the land here. You are now my esteemed guests 
And I have the authority to make it happen for you. You are welcome here. And you see, as always the case with grace, they got what they deserved the least. And that's grace. You see, grace cuts directly against the grain of of human thinking because it's not fair and we value fairness. If somebody does something wrong, they should get what they deserve. If somebody does something right, then they get rewarded for it, right? We expect it. But if someone does something wrong and they get rewarded in spite of it, we protest. That's not fair. That's not right. They don't deserve it. But you see, the Greek word for grace references an action that was beyond the ordinary, that was beyond what was and might be expected. You see, the Greeks would use it in the sense of, hey, I've done a a favor for someone, and and I've done this for you with with no expectation of of compensation or reconciliation. You know, like, you don't have to do anything in return for this. This is just purely a favor I've done for you. But when it's used in the writings of the New Testament, it refers to a favor that God did through Christ on the cross, where he took upon himself the guilt and the penalty of our sins. And you see, for the Greek, it was a favor that was always done for a friend. You would never do this for an enemy. But in the case of God, it was for the sinner for whom the favor was done. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God, grace, demonstrated by God throughout the story of humanity is not concerned with fairness. Because the math of grace doesn't always add up in our eyes. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of of a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and he left his flock because one, one was missing. And he left the 99 to go find the one sheep. Now that is like horrible asset management. Because while he's gone, what are the 99 supposed to do? They're open to predators. They're open to to rustlers, thieves who want to come take. They're open to meander off on their own. But his concern for the one led him to go find that one sheep. Jesus tells the story in Matthew chapter 20 of a vineyard owner who hired workers to go out into his his fields, to go out and to harvest his grapes. And and some he hired first thing in the morning, like, guys, we got to get this done. Get out there and and get this harvest. And so they started at sunrise. And then another group was hired sort of like at the mid-morning break. And then they joined the first guys and went out. Another crew was hired at lunchtime. A fourth crew was hired around the afternoon break. And then, because we still got a little bit more to do, he hired a fifth group like an hour before the harvest would be done. And everything was going great. Everything was fine until payroll time came. When those who worked for 12 hours under this blazing sun learned that those who'd worked for an hour or less were going to earn the same amount the exact same amount. And, and the owner's action contradicted everything about fair compensation, right? Hey, I worked this many hours, I should earn more. I only worked this many hours, I should only get this. 
And these guys are mad. But the owner says in Matthew chapter 20, starting verse 13, the owner says this, he answered one of the workers, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? You see, grace can't be reduced to generally accepted accounting principles. Because in the bottom line realm of ungrace, some workers deserve more than others. But in the realm of grace, the word deserve does not even apply. God uses a completely different kind of math. It's not fair. It's grace. It's given to those who don't deserve it, who barely recognize it, hardly appreciate it. You see, the grace of God is an expression of God's goodness. And it's his goodness because, listen, God is not unaware. God is not ignorant of all the ways that we have sinned against him, of the brokenness of our human nature. He knows everything we've ever done, and he's able to stomach it. His knowledge of who we really are will never hinder or stop his love for us. The intimacy by which God knows us but is, is able to lovingly embrace us as his own is supernatural. And this is grace. Paul says, and this is not from yourselves. You see, we can't earn our redemption. We can't earn our salvation. Try as hard as we do sometimes. And, and some of us, we put this on ourselves. We put this expectation on ourselves. Others, religion has put this on you. All you've heard your, your whole life is act this way, do this, don't do that. Watch your language, watch your appearance, make sure you're giving, all this kind of stuff. The gospel of grace teaches that our acceptance from God is not based on anything we've done or can do. It's God who gives salvation as a gift to all who receive it. Because that's what Paul says. This grace we've been given, the salvation that's been brought to us, it is a gift of God. Maybe you've been shown the gift of grace. Completely unexpected to you. Maybe you were unfaithful to your spouse and you were forgiven. Maybe you, you forfeited your integrity in, in a business deal and you were forgiven by those whom you deceived. Maybe you used words that just tore somebody down and in response, they returned words of kindness. Maybe you were an absent or a, a disengaged parent and your now grown child invites you back into their life. You see, grace assumes our inability to fix what's wrong and our need for God to address it. Paul said in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. You see, we accept God's gift, his work of grace through faith. 
And we all exercise faith in, in everyday life. All the time we exercise faith. When we drive, we have faith that other drivers are going to obey the laws of the road, right? You're at least a good portion of them or something, but we have faith. We have faith that our food and water are not contaminated. I didn't make it. I don't know where they got it from, but I have faith that it's not going to like harm me or get me sick. We have faith in a doctor who scribbles unreadable words on a piece of paper that we then hand to a pharmacist who apparently can read it somehow and hands us a bottle of pills. We have faith that these pills or what we need are going to help us. We have faith that politicians have our best interest in mind. Well, maybe not so much on that one. But we exercise faith every day. But the faith Paul is referencing here, it's a deeper faith. It's in a faith in the work of Christ on the cross, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the work that has saved us. You see, grace is, is the objective cause or basis of our salvation, and our faith is the subjective means by which we step into it and we are saved. And this is important because the work of Christ's death and his resurrection, it's universal in its provision. It is available to all man, but it's not universal in its application. We're not automatically saved just because Christ died. We're saved when we put our faith and our trust in God's gracious provision for us. You see, God works through grace. Grace is the source. Faith is the means. Salvation is the result. And if you're, if you're a Christ follower today, this is our story. You and I have this story in common. While you and I were, were spiritually dead in our sins, which explains all that's wrong in this world, which explains where we've come from, and which explains all the brokenness around us, while we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ by his grace. God, deep in love, even while we were sinners, sent his son for us. And by grace, through faith, we're brought from death to life, broken to put back together, separated to restored. And this is our story. And it didn't happen because God was putting together this great select group of all-stars who worked hard enough to earn their place. He's freed us from that pressure. He's freed us from that burden. He's freed us from that impossibility of saving ourselves. And for some of you watching right now, this can be your story today. You've been kicking the tires of Christ and you've been checking out this whole Christianity thing and, and maybe you just, for whatever reason, you haven't been ready or willing yet to take that next step into faith, into grace. Maybe you've grown up in a church or spent some time in one and, and you've drifted away or maybe you were driven away by people in the church or by others who are anything but graceful to you. But God has done a work for you. Again, Paul said in his letter to the Romans, God demonstrated his own love for you in this. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. You were loved. And that's grace. Grace has been waiting for you.
And here's what I would love for you. I would love for you today to make a choice of faith, to become a Christ follower, to step into the grace that God has extended to you, found in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, to redeem you from your brokenness and from your sins. And if that's you, here's what I would love for you to do. You, you, if you're watching online, you can comment on Facebook. You can send us an email. Just give us a call somehow. Let us know. Because we want to come alongside you. Not to start spamming you or asking you for money or anything like that. We want to come alongside you to help you start your journey with Christ. What that looks like and what that means. But it can be you today by simply making a choice of faith and stepping into the grace that God has given to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that your grace is all-consuming, that your grace, though we are undeserving, is always available to us, and that you demonstrated it to us through the death and the life of your Son. And Lord, in all that has happened in our lives and all that may be going on right now in our lives, that nothing we can do can separate us from the grace that you show to us as you work through us and in us by your grace. We thank you for that, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.